Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, this is Colin. So, um, if you are caught in a moment of cultural outrage, there are things you can do. There are recourses. You could cancel your subscription to Netflix, which eight times as many people have been doing lately as typically canceled their subscriptions to Netflix, and we'll tell you why. Or if you were a big celebrity, you could freeze your social media accounts for 24 hours to protest something. Uh, Or if you're Kanye West, you could pee on your Grammy. And we're talking about the award statue, I want to emphasize. Never mind. Uh, So we're going to talk about all that today, plus uh, something... I think I think happier and nicer, uh, which is the re, the naming of a new promenade uh, on a West Hartford park after a fictional character. Uh, and here to handle all of these complicated things are our guest on the nose today, Teresa Kramer, writer and editor at eContent Magazine. She joins us via the miracle that is Skype. Uh, and Rich Holland, uh, principal at CoLab, founder of Free Center and commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. So the first thing we are going to talk about is this nationwide controversy or faux controversy uh, about a movie called Cuties, uh, which is now available on Netflix. We're going to talk about both the movie, the real movie, which we actually went to the trouble of seeing, um, (laughs) unlike most of the people who are upset about it. uh, And uh, we'll talk about the movie itself and also about the controversy that goes along with it. But yes, it has occasioned a canceled Netflix uh, movement. Uh, and there's a lot of posturing going on about that. We'll talk about all this other stuff as we go along here. As I introduce Cuties, uh, its French t- title is Mignonet. Um, I cannot play a clip from it because the movie is entirely in French, Arabic, Spanish, and I believe Wolof. Uh, so you, if I played the clip, what good would it do you, uh, unless you speak one of those languages? So it debuted at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival, uh, where its director, uh, Maimuna Ducore, uh, won a directing award, I think the directing award, uh, and it's, you know, kind of enjoyed some award circuit, film festival circuit buzz and excitement and some fairly decent reviews, and then this backlash started, and we'll get to that. But uh, we'll begin by saying it's the story of Ami. Uh, She is an 11-year-old Senegalese girl living in one of the less, one of the parts of Paris that tourists do not visit. Uh, And uh, she is also facing some familial disruption. Her father, who has not been around for a while, is coming back with his second wife, uh, and he intends to also keep his first wife, uh, but the, this new second wife, whom nobody has seen, is going to be moving into the apartment with Ami's dad. And meanwhile, Ami finds herself drawn towards a group of fellow 11-year-old girls who are self-styled uh, dancers, da- a dance crew uh, that will be participating in some kind of competition. Uh, and I think that might be enough scene setting to get us going here. Uh, so, Rich, I'm going to start with you, okay? Uh, because I know you didn't like the, <laughs> the movie all that much, and I'm interested in why. Well, um, the bulk of the reason I didn't like the movie is uh, I thought that it 
treated um, a fairly complex, a series of complicated um, uh, ideas in a tremendously judgy way. Um, uh, it had judgment over cultures, um, particularly the, the the Senegalese culture. It had um, uh, it had this weird take on innocence for me. Um, uh, uh, it projected onto uh, these young girls um, uh, the sort of a sort of what I what I would describe as a post the uh, pre the accused. A sense that um, that any exploration of your sexuality uh, is a you know is a trip down um, um, preparing you to be called a slut somewhere along the line. Um, it, there was a lot of sort of slut shaming. There was um, a conflict around uh, what dance and movement is uh, versus. Um, uh, what's actual uh, sexualization um and uh it to me put the accent on the wrong syllable it kept making it about like these young girls shouldn't be exploring their sexuality in this way because it's provocative and uh that's problematic for for whom exactly um it's problematic for you know men who would be um looking at them and be the ones who are actually carrying this a sexualized notion. Um, and uh, the movie seemed to actually reverse that, you know, and and bring a cultural conversation back about 30 years. Hmm. Boy, I, boy, I really didn't see the movie that way. But uh, Teresa, just give me your uh, thumbnail take as we head into this. I, I, I don't feel like mine's that dissimilar from Rich's take. Um, I have to say my feelings are still evolving about this, um, but none of my feelings were outrage, right? Like, I, unlike, you know, the cancel Netflix crowd, I didn't, I didn't find this offensive in any, in any way. I felt that it just rang a little bit false to me mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, I was actually surprised to find out the filmmaker was a woman because you know, I was sitting there watching this thinking like, this is an old man's reaction to mm -hmm. youth culture and what it's like to be a young girl because um, it just felt so like, it was all about extremes, right? It's like either you're completely covered and, you know, one of the quotes at the beginning of the movie that we hear when she's, it's not, ma she's not at the mosque exactly. She's like sort of in the apartment basement, but with all the other Senegalese immigrant women and they're all covered. And someone says evil dwells in the bodies of uncovered women. And then we get a movie that seems to actually agree with that to some mm -hmm. degree, um, even though at some points I was thinking, is this going to be just like footloose mixed with bend it like Beckham? You know, we've got like th this sort of like, no, you can't dance, but, but she's going to find her freedom through dancing. But then instead it, she just goes so completely off the deep end that you're like, well, I don't, I can't believe any of this would ever happen. <laughs> like it, it just felt really, um, everything was taken to, to too much of an extreme for me, including all the other cuties who didn't resemble any 11 year olds. I know. Uh, I, I want to just say on, on behalf of the movie that, <laughs> uh, that first of all, Ducore, she decided to do, do this. She's a 35 year old French Senegalese woman. Uh, she decided to do 
this movie partly because she saw one of these she happened to see one of these competitions that involved 10 and 11 year old girls uh, and she thought that the way that they were dancing I mean the way that they dance in the movie if you've seen Little Miss Sunshine uh, and you remember the incredibly inappropriate dance that Alan Arkin the sketchy grandpa teaches to his beloved granddaughter it's not that different it's got a little they, they dance a little bit you know, like maybe the L.A. Laker girls, but also a little bit like strippers. Uh, and and so she wondered, what's going on? Who are these 10 and 11-year-old girls doing this kind of dancing? I, I actually think, and I'll give my little defense of the movie, and then I'll kind of shut up. But um, I, I think the movie is a really interesting movie about, first of all, the displacement uh, of innocence. I mean, because in all cultures these days, what are 10 and 11-year-old pre-sexual kids supposed to do? with the bombardment of sexual material or sexualized material that's out there, whether it's, you know, the the latest really lewd hip hop lyric or uh, or some kind of dancing or porn that they could very easily find on their phones. Um, and it's clear that these girls, they don't know that much about sex. They don't really know what they're what they're responding to. They have a conversation very early on where they've seen some porn and they try to explain among themselves how this whole thing works and they, they don't have it right. Um, and, and so it's sort of, what do you do with all that? Well, I mean, there's a temptation to want to be part of it and dance to it and dance that way. And, and for Ami, the other problem is that her, her household, her strict Muslim household, which is going to be a little bit repressive to women no matter what, uh, is, is also uh, losing some of its innocence with the arrival of this second wife. So I actually thought, you know, in terms of sort of saying, well, where, where does she go? Where does she go to have her childhood, something that resembles uh, um, a discernible childhood. I thought it really asked that question really well. However, I should say I watched this movie at 7 a.m. this morning, so maybe my, my critical faculties, maybe I was more easily seduced by the movie. But I, I don't know, Rich, were, were there parts of the movie that, I think you've indicated there were parts of the movie that did work for you, that you could maybe see Ducore doing some interesting stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I watched the movie, I started watching it at 4.45, so, um, so AM or AM or PM? AM, AM. Oh my lord! Uh, so I'm not quite sure if that's really uh, if the time was the the discerning factor here. Um, yeah, there was the, there were a couple of moments in the movie uh, where it actually really worked. When we got rid of all of the other characters, um, and, uh, other than these these uh, four girls and the the weirdness of their relationships, you know, the fact that you know that they really did deliver uh, this idea of of innocence and figuring things out, you know, which we're gonna do, right? All kids do that. We all figure out our sexuality. Um, and when we had a closed um, uh, sandbox sandlot kind of um, storytelling approach, a stand-by-me sort of storytelling approach, that worked beautifully. I think uh, when that was peppered with some of the magical realism uh, that, was, uh, that was a part of this story, um, you know, these beautiful scenes of, you know, of, of these sort of fantastical images um, uh, that weren't reality, uh, that worked. You know, so when the movie became a sketch of these relationships and this curiosity and, um, and uh, kids pretending 
and um, mixed it with these sort of fantasy imagery, um, that to me felt really true to youth, right? The problem where the movie falls apart for me is where it starts getting connected um, uh, to the rest of the world, to this adult world, to this world that looks at these kids in a judging way um, where I think there's a failing. Um, when I think about, for, for an example, um, Sally Mann has done this beautiful uh, body of, of work as a photographer um, uh, documenting her daughter, um, probably from around the age that these girls were. She was documenting the evolving uh, um, sexuality of her daughter, you know, her daughter's awareness of her body, um, her daughter's awareness, you know, you could see in the image, her daughter's awareness of how she sits and what that means and how that transfers, uh, how that evolves over time, you know? Um, and that there's a, a lack of judgment in that and a complete acceptance of that as being a natural way that we, that we become who we are. Uh, that to me is absolutely, you know, poignant and sad and joyful and lovely all at the same time. It's this blend of things. Um, this movie walked away leaving me feeling like we were judging these kids and we're, and we have some um, contempt uh, for uh, the media and everything that's around them that causes these children to lose their innocence like this, as though, you know, conflating these ideas of innocence and freedom and uh and ultimately somewhere along the line in our lives liberation we we should probably note that the sally man stuff has elicited or excited the same kinds of reaction that mm -hmm. this movie is exciting in other words you know people re some people regard the way that she's photographed her family uh as either pornographic or disturbing in some other sense and i do think there's some commonality there of people filmmakers or a photographer trying to make you feel uncomfortable trying to take it a little bit further you know into the discomfort range but Teresa, the problem with that is you wind up starting a huge controversy that gets, you know, the Obamas get dragged into and and God knows who else. I mean, in a way, you're playing into, I mean, I think she's making a movie about the exact thing that the conservative critics of the movie have a problem with. And she has the same problem. And that's getting lost somehow. I, I think it is. And the more I read about this, um, the more I came to understand that part of this was in Netflix's marketing of mm -hmm. the movie, right? There was apparently a poster early on. I think it was the one of them all in like their competition uniforms kind of posed pro sort of provocatively. But when I looked at the poster, I was still like, if these were girls who were about to compete in a gymnastics competition or a cheerleading competition, and maybe there were a couple poses that were a little bit more suggestive than others. But if if they were wearing the same outfit and just getting ready to do a gymnastics competition, I don't think anyone would have a problem with it. And I also just have a little trouble believing most controversies are genuine at this point because I feel like it's just everybody is is got to have their thing to be angry about. And this, you know, this is, you know, it's like the QAnon controversy or something. It's like we're, we have to go out there and save all the kids from these these rampant rings of sex traffickers that don't really exist and this movie is just playing into their hands, even when it's not. And if they were, and if anyone watched it, they'd they'd come to understand that.
Well, yeah, I mean, Rich, you, you, you felt the movie was too judgmental. Well, yeah. um, I, I want to add one other thing to it, right? So I think that the movie was judgmental in terms of, you know, it added for us what we were supposed to say, right? It didn't give very mm -hmm. much room. There was this one, you know, older guy who, you know, who looked at those girls in a, in a you know, in that way, you know, lustfully, right? Um, and, uh, and immediately his friend whacks him. It's like, Hey, what's wrong with you? You know? So, mm -hmm. so it's really clear about where everybody needs to be, you know, in, mm -hmm. in this conversation. The movie made that. So, um, uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to argue for a second. Um, and I'm just trying this out. So I'm, I may back out of this argument as I start putting it out there <laughs> uh, that, um, that the director set this up, right? Um, I think that there is a way of showing these young girls dancing, you know, where we step back in the way that I've seen some masterful directors do, where we step back and, and be wide enough that we could see this thing and it dares us to see something there that's not actually really there, right? But instead, the, the director directed these scenes of this girl dancing exactly the way, you know, you'd see a video of Cardi B dancing. You know, uh, it's moving close in for, you know, for um, button crotch shots. And, um, you know, and there was a directorial shot uh, to a directorial decision to show these girls uh, the way you see these women in videos. And I think that that's a really complicated decision to, to have made. Um, and, uh, and I don't think that it worked, you know, because I think that um, the, the director poured in so much more sexualization of these girls than they were in the in their awkward way of moving their bodies anyway. I think that's a really interesting argument. And I, I don't think you should pull away from it. I mean, I think, Teresa, that what he's describing is, however, a choice. In other words, it's not Ducouré's blindness to what she's doing uh, or the way that she's kind of uh, over-focusing uh, on the stuff that Rich is talking about. I mean, she's decided on that choice. And, and I think you, as I'm listening to Rich, I'm thinking, well, he, he has a point that you could have cut 20 to 30 percent uh, of that kind mm -hmm. of heavy, it's not a male gaze, I guess, but it's a camera's gaze uh, on all that. And you'd still have the same movie and maybe fewer problems. But maybe Ducore would say, I don't want you to have fewer problems. Well, I, yeah, because I'm thinking like that final scene, which is uh, the final dance scene anyway, which is perhaps the most uncomfortable of them all. Because when we see them practicing these moves, I don't, I don't feel like you get the same reaction to it because they are so awkward and it's so ridiculous. And it's like one 11 year old girl teaching another 11 year old girl how to perform this move. And you get this idea that this is just kind of this is how girls behave behind closed doors, right? They start wearing high heels and putting on lipstick and tying their shirts up into crop tops. And, and then they start trying out these dance moves together and alone. And it's, and it's not, it's not weird, frankly, that an 11 year old girl would be trying this, but when you put it on stage and you start doing, you know, close-ups of their midriffs and their butts and their legs and everything else, that's when it sort of starts to feel sexualized. Right. Because if that final scene had just been them sort of from afar and audience reactions to what was going on, it's I mean, the movie, frankly, still would have been just as judgmental, but there wouldn't have been so many sort of vaguely sexualized images in it. 
Yeah, I think I could defend the way that's shot, but I also don't think that would be that interesting if I did. So <laughs> um, I, I, I guess the other part of this, I'd like to just pause for a moment over the other part of this and the sort of the controversy part. I think as both of you has just suggested, there's something a little fake and con contrived mm -hmm. a, a, about the controversy. It's certainly, I'm, I'm very comfortable that Ted Cruz has never seen this movie, no matter how mm -hmm. outraged he claims to be by it. Uh, and, you know, to suggest that the Obamas should be blamed, not because they have anything to do with this movie, but because they have a deal with Netflix, um, you know, it is just crazy. The the mm -hmm. underlying question, though, Rich, and I know this is one that's close to your heart, is, mm -hmm. you know, should artists be able to work in ways that are challenging, sometimes transgressive? Should they all are we creating or how's the current supercharged environment created an environment where you pay a big price if you, you decide, wow, I'm going to take this in a direction that's going to make somebody uncomfortable. I mean, I know part of the answer is Ducouré is, per this conversation, way more famous than she would have been if she if these people hadn't jumped in and made her, her movie such sure. a hot topic. But still, you wonder about the chilling effect anyway. I think you, I think you do the art you, you intend to do. Um, I think that uh, that if you're doing something that you know in your you know in your gut when you're doing something that's going to be controversial. I mean, there's no missing that, right? You know, you you know that if you're going to put you know a, a sculpture of Christ in an urn filled with urine, as someone did once, you know, <laughs> and that you're that there are going to be a couple of people that are going to be angry about this, right? Um, be mindful, <laughs> you know, yeah. think it through. Uh, and and dig it deeper and put a piece of work up um, uh, that could stand up to the arguments. Um, I just don't feel that this could stand up to the arguments. And no, on it, the other end of the spectrum, um, uh, when I think about uh, the folks who are bent out of shape about this movie, this movie actually supports their beliefs, yes. right? You know, it supports the idea, you know, the, the message that you walk away with from this, you know, down to the beatific ending is that, you know, oh, let the, let the children be children, you know, spare them, you know, spare them from the black videos. Um, and, uh, and, um, and that uh, all of those other cultures are just kind of messed up and weird and ours is the good one because we're wholesome and we have Thanksgiving supper. You know, so that actually supports, you know, the what these uh, what these folks or the Ted Cruz's of the world um, uh, want to hear supported. And, you know, and so this idea that it turned into a controversy is really perplexing. I think I also, some, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Teresa. Sorry, I also sort of the more we talk about this, the more upset I am is that she that she didn't because I feel a little bit like the she just kind of threw everything at this movie and didn't follow through on all of it. And I think there are some really interesting places where she could have made some connections. So like when the auntie sort of tells Ami that she, you know, when she was hurried, she was engaged to be married. And just a couple of years later, she was married. And, you know, I would assume she's having sex and having a baby shortly thereafter. You know, how does sort of that cultural norm then sort of bump up against this idea that we don't think these 11 year old girls should be exploring their sexuality in any sort of public way, you know? Um, uh, and I, I, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to explore there that, you know, that 
that's not what the movie was about, I guess, but I also feel like it would have been a more interesting movie if it had been about that. Well, I think it does share, when I was watching it, I was thinking a little bit about the series Unorthodox, um, you know, which is a, about a, a woman escaping a pretty repressive mm-hmm. uh, environment where, you know, she just, so much of modernity is withheld from her that she doesn't really know that much about modernity. Uh, and and there's a little bit of that in Ami, too, that, you know, if she's going to stay in, in the Senegalese enclave in Paris and, and grow up as a good Muslim woman, uh, there's a way in which she's being deprived of an awful lot of the existing Western culture. The problem is that she runs out to the Western culture and doesn't really know what to do with it. I, we have to go to a break here. I do want to say one thing, which is there's you should watch this movie. I'm glad I watched this movie anyway. Mm-hmm. And there is this shot when they've gone on this shopping spree that they can't afford and they're coming back and they've bought all this fancy underwear, these 11 year old girls, and they're tossing into the air in slow motion as they're coming over a rise in these Paris streets. And Vivaldi's Nisi Dominum uh, is, is playing in the background. And it's such, I mean, it really is a stagey, very self-conscious shot, but boy, the payoff is huge. I was just watching that and thinking, Okay, I definitely have to see her next movie. Um, uh, all right, we have to take a quick break here, and we will come back. Two for the money, three for the three for the honey, four for the four when you shake your bum bum bum. See, see, me I like to party. Party with the boys, I get money. Hey, me I like to party. All right, we are back. This is the nose. Uh, joining us today, Teresa Kramer uh, and Rich Holland. Uh, so, uh, on a lighter note, uh, the the Fernridge Park, which is not too far from where I'm sitting, it's in West Hartford. Uh, it's actually the park where that I grew up playing in too. Was also the part uh, park that Michael Shore grew up playing in. Uh, he went on to co-create Parks and Recreation, Parks and Rec, uh, and uh, then to create the Good Place, for which we have unbounded. Uh, admiration. Um, and he, he apparently sort of keeps his eye on things back in West Hartford. He found out that they were doing a, a refurbishing of the park and that they were collecting donations for that. And there were even naming rights. And so he decided that the new promenade in Fernridge Park should be named Cat after this woman. Hi, I'm Leslie Nope. I'm pro parks, pro public safety, and I'm pro clean water. I'm also pro environmental regulation, and I'm very, very pro local propositions 45, 86, and 102F. But most of all, I'm pro Pawnee. Here are some other things that I'm pro. As you can see, I'm in favor of a lot of things, like hot dogs. Right, Charlie? I'm Leslie Note, and I approve this message. Yes. I love it. Fantastic. So you hear Amy Poehler as Leslie Nope, uh, Aziz Ansari as Tom Haverford are right there at uh, the end. That's Parks and Rec. And there is, there will be now, because of a $10,000 gift from Michael Schur, a Leslie Nope promenade or promenade, I'm not sure which, uh, in uh, Fernridge Park. So, um, you know, this isn't something that's probably worthy of an extremely deep conversation, but, uh, <laughs> ter- but Teresa, just give me your reaction. 
was just, you know, kind of like the when the Internet named that new warship Bodie McBoatface or, or whatever. I thought it was like another one of these things that just happened because of the web. But then when I read the actual article and saw that, um, you know, the creator of the show is actually from West Hartford, it made total sense to me that, like, you know, I'm sick of seeing things named after corporations but at the same time, we just have a history filled with problematic figures. And if we were to just choose from the ones we can all agree on, it would probably be like the same five promenades and boulevards over and over again. So why not name something after Leslie Nope, who was this person created by, you know, like the hometown boy? It makes total sense to me. So, yeah, I mean, well, I, I, let's hear from Rich because Rich serves on commissions and stuff like that. To, to think about yeah, things so, like this. Um, so there's, a, as, as we all know, there's a, there's this ongoing thing about what we name things, what we rename things. And uh, that's going on in our city right now. Uh, commissions coming together to talk about what we're going to name stuff. right? And, um, and this decision, I think, is hilarious. Um, first, the background to it is really adorable, right? You know, you've got this guy who uh, not only uh, has this sweet story of how this park was in his backyard, literally, um, uh, when he was growing up, and then, you know, all the, the lovely privileged conversations about, you know, how he used to go out and swim in the pool and play tennis and then play soccer and baseball back there. Um, you know, it couldn't have happened to a nicer town. <clears throat> and it has an air of kind of like Portlandia about it, you know, and and uh, I think it's just perfectly fitting. And um, the, the beauty of it is that somewhere along the line, this too shall be politicized, um, uh, which is both <laughs> the, the hilarity and the, uh, uh, and the unfortunate part of it all. Yeah, I mean, I do think this isn't like, you know, I don't know. Jay-Z keeping his eye on things in bed or something like that. But mm -hmm. it is it is nice that a guy like Shure, who's gone on to enjoy, you know, a, a pretty amazing career, still is aware even of what's going on in a park in West Hartford near where he grew up, or very near, as Rich says, where he grew up. Uh, and I, I, you do sort of like that idea anyway, that you know, it still matters to him. He still understands, you know, where he's from and, and, and all of that. It isn't as I say, like, you know, I mean, a lot of celebrities come from much needier places than West Hartford. I, I guess a question that I that I actually have for the group here is what is it, this story for me is is an example of realism that's also magical realism in some weird way. Right. Um, I could see making a movie where this scene would be in it and and it would have that aw shucks. This couldn't possibly be real uh, aspect about it. Right. Um, what is it that just has us just smile about stuff like this and go like, oh, that's sweet. Um, when uh, it's also like full of other stuff if we dare, dare to look underneath it. You know, it's full of uh, now a promenade that's not being named by a community, but named by a guy who come up with $10,000 to name it himself, right? You know, there's so many ways that we could look at this uh, that's filled with, um, you know, a kind of skepticism and, and negativity and contempt. Uh, why do we choose to hold on to, to this and not get into the fray? I have a theory, Teresa, that we're so desperate at this particular moment for things to be happy about <laughs> that Leslie well, Nope's sunniness is very hard to resist. 
I think that's true, but it, to some degree, it also makes you think maybe this guy really is just Leslie Nope, right? Because this is the exact kind of project she would have been involved in on Parks and Rec, and he created a show about people who care about small little things happening in their town like this. And so it makes you wonder, like, does he really care that much about these things? But also, so in the past, it would have just been, you know, some doctor who no one has ever heard of giving the $10,000 and naming it after himself, you know, and everyone would have been like, you know, who's Norman Schwartz? I don't, I don't know who this guy is, but now we've got the Leslie Note Parkway and we can all gig or, or promenade and we can all giggle a little bit when you walk down it and then go home and watch a Parks and Rec episode and be happy. Yeah, I, I'm for that. Uh, we have to make a quick, quick transition here anyway. So I don't think most of us would dispute the fact that Facebook and social media in general do play a role in circulating information and, and content that incite violence, spread racism and hate uh, and contribute to, to electoral disinformation. But what to do about it? What to do about it? Well, Kim Kardashian decided she in her words, she just couldn't sit by and do nothing. So she, <laughs> I can't even get all the way through that. Uh, she couldn't just sit that by and do nothing. So she decided to organize herself and presumably all other Kardashians. And then, uh, you know, a broader spectrum of celebrities, some of them with some actual intellectual and activist heft to them um, to freeze their social media accounts for 24 hours. Um, and so... <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, that is not my understanding of what's happening here. This, to me, seems like a a small part of a larger campaign that's yes. organized by the ACLU and the NAACP. And, you know, Kim Kardashian is sort of the headline of it, but mm -hmm. it's really a much bigger um much bigger push. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing a guy mm -hmm. like Mark Ruffalo, who's really serious about his activism, isn't involved mm -hmm. in this for 24 hours. But so, mm -hmm. Rich, is this more like a thing where you take something showy like this, I feel mm -hmm. like we're getting back towards our earlier conversations, and use it to leverage something of substance? It's, that's how it works. Um, and uh, in, in a lot of ways, um, that's uh, there's a, a piece of community organizing that it wants to suggest that it's doing. Um, uh, it's got a sense of like, we are union busters and we're on the side of right. Um, and so, yeah, it's part of a broader campaign and absolutely uh, it's being used to call attention. Um, uh, I think that we're at an age though where boycott has just about no meaning whatsoever. This is gonna have no impact yeah. on Facebook whatsoever. How many times have we seen Facebook boycotted in the past couple of years? Um, a, a day without um, uh, Kim Kardashian is not a day without sunshine, you know? And, um, and ultimately uh, the, the challenge that, that I see in this is celebrities being used in a way that's not the most efficient use of celebrity. Um, uh, the, the official, the um, efficient use of celebrity is to extend beyond that one day, you know, and to say that mm -hmm. I'm not going to participate until this change occurs. And that's putting your finger on the, on the scale. Um, this is just, you know, a little piece of drama that everybody gets some, you know, that you don't have to come up with a photo to post about. It also makes me wonder if you're leaving a vacuum for mm -hmm. 
for the worst among us when you take these people out of circulation, right? Instead of doing a big organized push to flood social media with a message, you're just taking all messaging out and leaving a vacuum. And I, I don't know that that's the best way to approach this. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure I agree that that's how social media works. But um, I, I, to me, this was one of my few trademarked phrases is a cheap date with your conscience. And mm-hmm. I think for a lot mm-hmm. of the celebrities, this was a cheap date with their consciences. It is as Rich is suggesting, you know, if you really did draw a line here and say, my participation will resume when I see substantive changes in the following areas, uh, then, you know, you really are maybe kind of flexing your might and making some use of it, but also making some kind of sacrifice. Um, and all of that seems to be empty from this. I'm hopeful that sitting underneath these waters is, you know, a, um, a much more substantive effort, effort by uh, the groups that, that, that you were mentioning, Teresa, which include mm-hmm. the Anti-Defamation League, Color of Change, and AACP. But I do, I, I wonder. <laughs> um, Go ahead. I, I wonder about anything that's in, in being in this business, right, <laughs> of creating these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I've become so skeptical about anything that's framed as a co- as a campaign. Um, mm-hmm. It tends to be short lived, with short with uh, with a goal of awareness, and that's pretty much it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, something that's um, that's framed as an action uh, makes so much more sense for me. You know, so if we're taking these celebrities, all of who are sitting on you know on on a pretty penny, and uh, if we were to suggest that they are pooling their resources um, to counter uh, these um, these uh, false uh, false statements and lies, um, and to to build uh, an entire uh, system and network that can attack those where they exist, um, uh, now we're talking about something. But it's going to actually cost people. It's going to cost people more than just uh, the lending of their names. And um, when we actually start paying those costs for the change that we want to see, then uh, we're getting somewhere. Yeah, I'm increasingly interested in the idea, not so much of uh, campaigns, uh, as I am in the creation of better norms. I mean, I think our normative structure is broken in this country, and I'm not sure what can fix it, if anything can fix it. But, you know, yesterday we were doing a whole show about masks, and I thought, you know, really, if very early on a lot of these celebrities had sort of you know, d- done PSAs and stuff like that about their mask and wearing their mask or, or washing their hands while they, you know, sing a stupid song or, you know, I mean, creating norms, uh, a normative structure which endorses the use of masks and washing hands. And I think it's, you know, there's a little bit of that that could go on here. Like Rather than have them do this, I'd rather have them use the influence that they so celebratedly have to improve the normative structure of social media, which I know is a really yeah. tall order. But to me, that's that's the remedy. Speaking of uh, disimproved normative structures, we have to leave some time for Kanye West to urinate on his Grammy, uh, which he did symbolically. I mean, he did it. He put it in the toilet and he he, he went on it. But um, this was a way, his way of... <laughs> I, know, I really sorry. hope you don't ask me to go first on this one. All right. So, uh, so, yeah, Teresa will have to go first. This was his way of illustrating his displeasure with the current state of the music industry. A common complaint these days is that somebody other than the artist owns the masters 
you know, that's why they call them masters, too, I think. But uh, somebody other than the artist owns the masters uh, and as a result is not in a position to benefit fully, particularly in this particular cultural moment. So Kanye is, you know, and he's inviting his fellow artists to join him, not in that specific activity, but in, you know, rising up. I don't know, Teresa, you have to go first. Yeah, I mean... As, as is so often the case with Kanye, he's trying to make a good point in all the wrong ways. And But at the same time, I feel like if he hadn't urinated on his Grammy, we wouldn't be talking about him. And I probably wouldn't even know he was tweeting about anything because he's, you know, kind of driven me so crazy over the past couple of years that I don't even pay attention to him anymore. So is he a sly genius for peeing on his Grammy or is this just, you know, Kanye being Kanye and, you know, uh, taking everything to some bizarre extreme? Well, she, you know, Rich, she just asked the fundamental Kanye question, right? Mm -hmm. Sly yeah. genius or just a annoying poser or both or so take it away. So I think that the, the answer to that always comes down to um, what are we doing with the information, right? Uh, with mm -hmm. what he's doing. And what we're doing with it is we're having a conversation about Kanye peeing on right. his on his Grammy. We might mention um, uh, some of the some of the context for that, uh, but we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get back to talking about Kanye. Um, ultimately, mm -hmm. his sly genius is to um, is to use is to hold on mm -hmm. to just enough content. Um, uh, that people hang in, that we as the audience hang in with his narrative, but the narrative always is about Kanye. Um, and, uh, you know, so in that regard, I'm going to, I'm going to give him, you know, 10 on the slide genius, right? Um, because that is what his intention is. Uh, yet, um, what gets missed in this conversation is the fact that uh, along with um uh, his disgruntled nature of ownership and rights, et cetera, that he actually released the personal contact information mm -hmm. uh, of the, uh, of the, what is it, a producer or something like that? Um, of uh, Randall mm -hmm. Lane's information. He's a, an editor at Forbes, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, he decided that this guy was a white supremacist and, you know, that's hot in the streets right now to, to, to label people <laughs> that way when it's true. Um, uh, if it's true, rather. And mm -hmm. uh, he released the guy's phone number and other contact information, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that, to me, is a thing that's, that's worth having a conversation about, you know, as much as, you know, Kanye urinating on his Grammy. Um, because I, I got to tell you, when you're sitting at that level uh, of notoriety, what is your responsibility um, overall? Very good question. We're going to sort of have to end it there, although I do want to point out a couple of things. One of them is that Kanye uh, called himself in the course of doing this, the new Moses. I don't think that's what Moses did with the tablets, but um, but I wasn't there. Um, the uh, Also that, you know, the person who called the most attention to this same issue last year, uh, the ownership of masters by someone other mm -hmm. than the artist, was in fact Kanye's sworn enemy, Tay-Tay. Uh, mm -hmm. Taylor Swift got, and she did the same 
same thing, not the exact same thing, obviously, not urologically the same thing, but she uh, did use her social media presence to call attention to the unfairness and try to create pressure uh, on uh, on the, the business entities that own her masters. So there yeah. we go. You know, they have something in common. They both hate this this problem. All right. So we have to go take a break. So we'll have time to endorse things on the other side. I keep you laced up so you ain't got a bar or nothing from them broke ass friends who be bargain hunting. They say they shop on eBay. Baby, why is they fronting? We're back. I have to quickly thank uh, Kat and Pastor for being there in the studio, making it possible for us to do our show remotely. Otherwise, she's there uh, making everything work just right. Uh, and uh, to thank the producer of this episode, Jonathan McPants, who wants you to know that the song we ended the previous segment with was a John Legend slash Kanye West tune called Number One. See, because he, he went number one on the Grammy as well. All right. So uh, we've got about five minutes left in the show. We get some time to maybe make some recommendations here. Uh, Teresa, why don't you get us going? I think I'm going to go a little highbrow and a little lowbrow here. First, I'm going to recommend a, a podcast called You're Wrong About. And it just sort of takes these looks, a look back at everything from like Tanya Harding to sex trafficking and tells you why you're wrong about everything you think you know about the situation. Um, I, I really love it. It's a Huffington Post journalist along with uh, someone who's writing a book about the satanic panic. And they do a lot of research for these episodes. It's really fascinating. But then at the same time, I'm spending a lot of time binging Married at First Sight on Netflix, which is complete and utter garbage, but it is riveting garbage. And I can't really... Um, Recommended enough for people who are currently stuck in quarantine with their loved ones because I feel like there must be an existing season where the people they married at first sight were then stuck in quarantine together, and I can't wait to see it. I just want to say that riveting garbage is basically what Carolyn Payne would like us to discuss every single week that she appears. Uh, it is on, a very Carolyn recommendation. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. So, uh, Rich Holland, what have you uh, got to recommend? Uh, I think I'm just going to crank up the controversy and just <laughs> aggravate the Christian right as much as I can tonight. So um, I've got three quick recommendations. Uh, one is a movie, uh, 1985, Hail Mary, Jean-Luc Godard. Um, a phenomenal thing. It's about a modern retelling of the birth of, of the virgin birth. Um, uh, I was in New York in, uh, with guns shooting over my head when I went to see this movie. So well worth seeing. Um, next, I am going to absolutely recommend uh, Sally Mann since we started talking about her. At 12 is one of the best books um, that I've, uh, that I've uh, ever purchased. And in fact, I have one of her photographs hanging up in my study. It's haunting and, uh, and powerful. And lastly, uh, to close the loop on this, um, uh, listen to uh, Michael Kawanuka's album, Love and Hate. Uh, it echoes uh, Carolyn Payne because it's got that song from Big Little Lies on it. Mm -hmm. um, there's a tune on there called um, a Black Man in a White World, which is just phenomenal. I haven't heard anything like that in a long time. That's it for me. 
All right. Uh, that's great. Uh, thanks to both of you. Uh, I'm going to endorse a, a few things quickly. First of all, about four noses ago or three noses ago or something, we actually talked about another Sudanese movie, Atlantics, uh, which is also terrific. Uh, I'm starting to get really interested, not Sudanese, a Senegalese movie called Atlantics. I'm getting really interested in Senegal. Uh, they've also managed their COVID problem way better than for example, the United States of America, despite they don't, in fact, they don't have the same resources to deal with it. Um, so uh, I also want to encourage people to look up at the sky uh, and at night uh, on clear nights. I don't know if the clouds are going to move today or not, uh, but the International Space, Space Station should be passing over and visible around 8.15 tonight. I think it'll start in the southwest and move northeast. But just, just a lot to see, with even with just binoculars or the naked eye. There's a lot to see on these beautiful, clear nights. And then, somewhat controversially, uh, I'm going to uh, um, I, last night, uh, my son and I watched uh, rewatched in my case, but for the first time in a long time, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is a troubling movie, and its misogyny is a real problem uh, in this day and age. And it's also just really weird to see the very young Danny DeVito uh, and Christopher Lloyd and and Brad Dourif. Um, but it's it's an interesting movie to watch with a critical narrative going in the background. I mean, you you and the person you're watching with have to keep talking about ways in which it's it's sort of wrong in 2019. But it's also right about some other things, too. It still has its power. Foreman's direction is still uh, pretty amazing. So watch uh, watch it. It's available on Netflix right now. Watch it, but obviously not uncritically. All right. Well, I can give uncritical and unhesitating praise to our two panelists today, Rich Holland and Teresa Kramer. Thanks very much for doing this uh, with me. And thanks to Kat Pastor and Jonathan McPants. And we're going to be back on Monday. We, as usual, on Mondays, we will tackle some of the epidemiology uh, in, involved right now in the pandemic, give you the latest medical uh, updates on COVID-19.